Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we will be wrapping up our second season. My goodness, the end of season <laughs> two for, for SF Crossing the Gulf. It's, it's been a long and odd and, and a little bit broken up season, but, but I think we covered some really good stuff. And, and I have to say, I made some discoveries that, well, you know, ever since you sort of dragged me, not exactly kicking and screaming into this <laughs> podcasting thing, I have made some discoveries that have made me, you know, just convinced me that this is entirely worthwhile. For me, the, the standout bits were um, Olaf Stapleton and um, also the bandana sing. Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm still raving about that. And very much also the chord winner's win. So, you know, I, I, I want to give, I want to especially thank you for making sure that I got steered in the direction of those works. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So those, those are some of the ones that we, that we talked about. We started out the season talking about Mary Doyer Russell's uh, Children of God, the yes. sequel to The Sparrow. How are we feeling about that now? It's been a while. It's been a while, but you know, I do, having, having looked at it, I do very much feel that it is so much a companion piece to The Sparrow. Mm-hmm. There's so much in The Sparrow that kind of gets, well, when I say resolved, I don't mean resolved in the sense of, you know, maybe tied up in a bowl kind of thing, but perhaps more illuminated, shall we say. Okay. She's able to expand it a little more in Children of God. So you, you do get a sense of you kind of need to read the book together. And uh, I'm very glad I did that. But she's just also a pleasure to read. Certainly, yeah, on a sentence-by-sentence craft level, she's a pleasure to read. The characters always are vivid. Mm -hmm. Um, I I still maintain that that Children of God didn't hang together. It wasn't quite the unity Mm -hmm. that Sparrow was. Uh, I know you felt that there were a few too many um, Deus Ex Machina (laughs) approaches. Yeah, just some Uh things that just didn't quite work or didn't seem to quite fit and I, I I didn't love it unreservedly the way I love the sparrow. I I would still say that I love it as a companion to the sparrow. The sparrow definitely is the one that gave the impact. But then of course by the time you come to Children of God, you you, you know what to expect and perhaps your expectations are a lot higher. Mm. So there's a part of me that also feels that perhaps I judge it a little more harshly because the sparrow was so good. Right. And if we didn't have that high standard in advance, we wouldn't be, you know, giving it such grief. I suspect that's probably true of me. Oh, by the way, I found out that there is a uh, an aerospace conference coming to Houston in the next few weeks, and Mary Doyer Russell has been invited as one of the speakers. So guess what really? I am going to try to attend. <laughs> I'm jealous. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I want to hear all about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. If I manage to make that happen, I will. I will report back. Okay, good. Let's see. The next thing we talked about, ooh, this was probably one Jagannath. of my favorites. Jagannath. <laughs> Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck, the Crawford Award winner this year. Mm-hmm. And Man, I, there was I nothing say, about that book that didn't rock. You know, yeah, I just, yeah, it was just, it just so gives me like warm, tingly feelings, you know, <laughs> thinking about it. Both the book and the podcast, because it's one thing to, there, there's an aspect of some of her short, short stories. Some of her short stories appear to be fairly straightforward. And some of them are very much a puzzle, um, a very intricate kind of puzzle. And I think part of the joy of the podcast was being able to talk to you and 
and find bits that we shared and also bits that we that I noticed that you had and that you noticed that I had it and just like expand the work even more. Yeah. So it, it, it is one of those books that is it's beautiful to read it by yourself. It's beautiful to read it in company and discuss it. Uh, it just it just satisfies on so many levels. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, just keep writing, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we want to read more. Uh, definitely. Okay, then we talked about Stapledon, as you mentioned. Yes, Star Maker. The font of all science fiction tropes and ideas. <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely a, there's still that feeling that every single science fiction story that's ever been written exists somewhere in the world of Star Maker. Pretty much. And to tell the truth, there's still stories in there that people haven't tapped, that mm-hmm. people have courageous enough to tap. Um, the breadth of imagination, um, the, the complexity, the, the scope, staggering, really. And, and, and how, it was not a very big book. Yeah. And I remember being completely deceived by it because I thought, oh, you know, I have time. It's, it's only about this. Bit. And then I started reading and I was like, oh, shoot. Yes. This is really, 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 it's both intense and dense. Well, I and cannot- especially, I mean, when you get the, when you throw in the fact that it doesn't really get moving until at least a third of the way through. Because I remember being reading the first bits about him in England and then when he first is kind of stranded out in interstellar space and I was like oh dear this is just not moving the way I remembered it did and then you know <laughs> and then it just whoosh ramps up this, <laughs> this exponential curve I was like oh oh right that's I remember now in a way I appreciated it more as a kind of an encyclopedia or historical tome mm-hmm. than I did as an actual novel I would argue it is not a novel in any <laughs> in any, <laughs> in any shape or form and, and the reader has to appreciate that, even as we rave about it, you know, don't expect to, like, curl up with this at bedtime and just sort of have a satisfactory story. It's not that kind of book. Well, and it doesn't, it doesn't have characters. It has worlds and races instead of characters. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a huge arc. It's a, it's a very kind of um, a, a, a view of, of the macro and not the micro. Although it's funny, I've got a, a, pap- a paper idea kicking around in my head, and Ward only knows when I'm going to have time to actually write it, sit down and collect evidence and see if it holds up at all. But I, I have a suspicion from my reading that, that some older SF actually is more open to the idea of the alien than some current SF. And this is not a surprise to me. Well, um, yeah, I just need to see if I can make it all, you know, like I say, marshal the evidence to, to make it coherent. But um, this would be a book I would point to in terms of old SF that is very welcoming to the idea of the alien. You need to discuss that with Gary. I bet he would have some really fascinating insights on that. <laughs> yes, and usually he tells me to go find them and write them down. Uh, <laughs> I've, got, I've got about four paper ideas that I've kicked around, you know, with Gary. And he's like, yeah, you should do that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, just listen to the man. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, so then then we tackled till we have faces, which was well, that was that was fascinating. That of was course, I came with my bias, but um, but it was fascinating because um, I had a particular approach to it. You had a different approach to it, and then of course we brought in in a, an external expert, <laughs> who, had a, who showed us an entirely new way of looking at at least the second half of the book. Yes. Um, and and I have to say that. Again, there's the enjoyment of the book itself, which I've raved about, so I'm not going to do that again. But the enjoyment of the podcast, again, for me, is the, the discovery of it. The mm-hmm. discovery of not just the different levels, but the different angles. Right. 
and and how sometimes you need to be careful when you bring expectations to things. <laughs> you know, I I had I had a sense of the particular angle or shall we say worldview for the first half of the book, mm-hmm. and then I tried to bring that to the second half of the book, and I thought, oh, you know, this this is this is a little confusing to me, and I had the wrong worldview. Right. Because because Lewis does have that way of moving very seamlessly between kind of myth and reason. And I, I did not realize that he was doing that even within the structure of his actual book. So that that taught me that taught me never to never to assume. Never right. To assume. And I, I will admit I came to 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 the book with, with quite a few pre expectations based on what I knew of Lewis and his, his religious uh, beliefs. And it was definitely interesting to get a, a more a deeper perspective on on where this book comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was part one. You've actually discussed all the works in part one, right. and what we did for part one to, to give it a little bit of coherence, we'd actually <laughs> apart from Children of God, which was a, a conscious follow up to the Sparrow, because we said we would do that from the time that we did the Sparrow. The rest of it was more bringing. Um, what we thought were some seminal favorites. So, Till We Have Faces um, was my favorite. And, um, and did I, was I the one who brought Jagannath? Yes. Okay. Because, because there again, I'd had the chance to read it. And, but I, I mean, in a way, we both brought it because you'd had the chance to read it as well. And we, we were both coming from a position of extreme enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, and, and, and Jagannath is important because it does have that different flavor or worldview, which makes it it's, it, it kind of almost cleanses the science fiction palette to be able to read a work like Jagannath. Because you definitely have to check your expectations at the door. You are reading it and you are thinking twice and three times in a watcher reading because you can't assume that you're in the background. And there's a, a sort of, um, I don't want to make it sound like work, but when I say there's extra work involved, um, you're using a, a few more of your gray cells than usual, and there's a, it's a very pleasurable activity. So there, there's an aspect of that which, to me, makes it a kind of a classic, even if a new classic, in the same way that Till We Have Faces of Star Maker are classics in the movie. Hmm. That may be a, 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 a radical statement. I mean, people don't like to talk about classics when the book has just been published for a year or two. Yeah. But, but no, I would, I would say that. I would say that. Well, certainly I think that in terms of the movement of the field right now into new weird, I think this is, all, this is going to stand as one of the exemplars of that, move, of that movement. Good, good, good. So I'm not just talking through my hat. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, so that was that was part one, part favorites, part um, seminal works, and, and really just a lot of enjoyment for us. Well, and also you, you you specifically were basing some of your choices on myth. Oh yes, see that I forgot. Yeah, <laughs> I was looking more at myth because Jagannath, of course, is more of Scandinavian myth, and C.S. Lewis, that is of course a lot of Greek myth that he was very much steeped in, mm. and that was where that was coming from. What was your rationale again? Um, mine was um, in the first season I had been recommending very contemporary works of science fiction that I thought were important so in this season I was recommending older works of science fiction that I thought were important 
Okay, which is how we ended up with Star Maker in the first part, and then for the second part, what you brought was Gene Wolfe, Gene Wolf. Shadow Torturer, and Corbinus Smith. Right. When and I went dabbling in what I like to call math fi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which which made for a, a varied range of works. We ended up with the oldest work we've ever looked at, Flatland, mm-hmm. Edward Abbott. Oh, was that in 1861? Uh, 1884. 1884. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Going a little far back there. Um, but the point is, not of this century nor the last. Right. And, and um, you know, stood up remarkably well. Actually, yeah, and I wanted to thank you for bringing that back to my attention because I had read it before in, in like high school, and you know I thought it was fun, but I uh, I was really impressed with how well Flatland stood up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's politically much more sophisticated than I realized when I read it in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, there's so many things that I read when I was in school that I need to just go back and read again. Oh yeah. But hang on, I'm, I'm all over the place. I should, we should probably start from the beginning. Shadow That's of the Torturer. Shadow of the Torturer. Complexity of world building again. Mm-hmm. Uh, love the way the, the language and linguistics is dealt with. Love the way that you get, uh, you know, you, you, you're dropped into the middle of things. So what if you don't know what's going on? Keep reading. Figure it out. You know, you and just don't, you don't sort of coddle people, coddle readers. Just let them get on with it. Right, and there's this beautiful ambiguity of world building where it's like sometimes he's calling, you know, he's he's uh, calling out to a science fictional touchstone, or sometimes he's calling out to a fantasy touchstone, and and it I just never forget the way you explained to me that that painting he was looking at was actually a picture of the moon landing. I know, okay. and I was like, what? What? <laughs> My moon. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, exactly, and 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 done very. Done in a fascinating way. Again, I come back to this word worldview. And one of the things that I mentioned is that it's far too easy to say read a, a work, a book from the fifties that talks about a future that is somehow very fifties-like in its worldview and culture and society. But here you have uh, Shadow of the Torture is in fact a future Earth, the dying Earth. Um, it's being correct term for that sort of subgenre, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the idea there is, no, 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 we're not going to transplant 20th century sensibilities into this. They moved on. They moved on, we're not saying they moved forward or back, we're just saying they moved on, had things are different, people are going to speak differently, they're going to think differently, they're going to view their, their you know, life and, and the reason that they're there, everything is going to be different, and that really comes across well. Well, and also, I mean, it's, it's, um, Wolf is sometimes able to introduce a sense of scale and a sense of wonder in the completely opposite way that Stapleton does. I mean, Stapleton is, for all his virtues, and there they are many, is not subtle. <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, he, he just he just tells you what it's about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he just paints the whole canvas and says, "Look, look at this huge universe we have! Oh my God!" Whereas, mm-hmm. whereas Wolf again with something like the Apollo painting or or picture by by. Dropping that in there and then giving these little hints about it, there, there's a moment where it's just all of a sudden the time scale opens up and you go, yep. and your jaw just drops. Yep. Yeah. And it's yeah. a very subtle light touch that, that I just love in Wolf. Mm-hmm. So continuing in order, we then went to Napier's Bones by Dal <laughs> Murphy, which is our first math fight. Right. This was fun. 
it was a fun it was what we can safely call a fun romp yes <laughs> yes pure and, action very filmic yep yep and and a shout out to daryl murphy who apparently listened to that one yes he did <laughs> and and also he 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 did not get um he did not get miffed at us for mentioning that we didn't find that there was enough of sort of female to female interaction <laughs> or um well <laughs> How to put it? Well, we've, it was we've, really, we've, it was we've really, stated uh, the bald fact that it did not pass the Bechdel test until the final <laughs> pages. And he's, and to Daryl's credit, and hey, Daryl, seriously, thank you, man. Because he's like, oh, and I've spent so much time talking to my teenage boys about the Bechdel test. I can't believe I did that. <laughs> he's writing a uh, sequel that, that we should point everyone to. And, um, yes. and I'm, I, for one, will look forward to it. And he's already said that he's going to make... Uh, the main character's uh, little sister, perhaps a, a little bit more of a, of a uh, important character in that. Which would, which would be a, a absolutely fascinating. Not only because the the whole family dynamics thing, and uh, when you have a family where there's one person who's gifted in a special way, mm-hmm. I don't see enough of that in some ways in, in speculative fiction. Because there's so much of the orphan trope. Yeah. There's yeah. so much of the, you know you know, your, your parents are dead or your family have cast you out because you're different or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, or, and, and to a certain extent in, in this one, it does start off that way where it's like, oh, you know, the, the thing with the numbers, nobody understood, so I went off by myself. But then in, in bringing back in his little sister where you do have this, this idea of people um, dealing with it, you know, dealing with somebody who's different or maybe not as different as you think um, and, and finding a way to... Uh, rationalize that in terms of what it means to be family. I but, find that more fascinating than just the orphan trope. By the way, uh, a book I will highly recommend that is along those lines, although with a completely different plot point, um, Daryl Gregory's Pandemonium. If you've never read it, you should. Uh, it's his debut novel. Uh, it also won the Crawford Award. And um, I, particularly my review of it back in the day, highlighted how well it dealt with a family dealing with a, a, an adult child who's who's different and has issues. Yeah, yeah. So, but okay. yeah, so Napier's Bones. Thank you very much for, for picking that one out. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. And then, well, Flatland we've discussed. Was there more that you wanted to say about Flatland? No, I think that, that pretty much covered it. I mean, like I say, it, uh, it held up very well. Yeah. Well, what I would say about Flatland that then became a theme for later works as well, is that in addition to the sort of straight math by aspect, there also became the aspect of, how shall we call it, the influence of culture on scientific discovery. We began to notice that being dealt with in Flatland where you could see that there was an element of trying to justify certain social structures by virtue of what they understood the universe to be like, uh-huh. but then also um, understanding the universe in terms of what the existing social structures were. So there was a bit of kind of um, kind of feedback between the two. So by the time we got to uh, the um, Ghost Weight and Shadow Postulates by Yu Ali, we really found the the math was there. You know, it was it was sort of um, a part of it, but really a lot of it in Shadow Postulates in particular was about how not only your cultural experience but your personal experience can become very much embedded in the kind of discoveries that you make in science, the kind of, of 
intuition you have, the kind of eureka moment you might have. And that I did not expect when I started on the whole math by journey, and it was very, very enriching for me. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, what next? Cordwainer Smith. Yes. Cordwainer Smith, we spent so much time talking about. We had we this one in two episodes. <laughs> and by the way, we folks, did, we're, we did, we did. We're, we're not done yet because uh, the, the one and only Gary K. Wolf has agreed to, to come on, um, hopefully in the next few weeks, and, and uh, talk with us a little bit more about Cordwainer Smith. Um, he's been writing, he has written papers about some of uh, Smith's work going back to the um, 70s and 80s, so I think he will have quite a bit of perspective to add. And he also recommended an academic paper for us um, concerning Alpha Ralph Boulevard. Which can be found in the current issue number 120 of Science Fiction Studies, which is, if you're willing to jump through some hoops, available online. <laughs> uh, and we'll probably, well, we won't get into the discussion of that right now, but we will probably bring that up. And, and I think Corbinner Smith, for me, is... <laughs> is interesting on several levels because I did start off with the first story thinking what the heck is going on here <laughs> and then by the time I had got gotten to the the final story I saw the first one in a completely different light mm -hmm. and part of that is that although he's writing short stories he's got a, a Stapledon level complexity of universal history and he is bringing to that universe an equally complex and, 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 and interesting and fascinating personal life. Yeah, yeah. His, his so, own personal psychology, it turns out, is fascinating, as well as his, his, his situation in the world where he had a perspective on international events and diplomacy yes. and warfare that is extremely rare in our field. In fact, yes. it's probably just extremely rare, period. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and I don't want to make it sound as if before you write anything you need to kind of go out and become an international spy or, or have uh, several degrees in anthropology and, and psychology. And be invited but, to teach at Johns Hopkins or anything like that. No, we, we don't want to suggest that at all. But at the same time, when it, does come, when it comes to world building at the level of an entire galaxy, um, when it comes to that sort of, when you need to have that level of difference and, 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 and technology and cultures and languages and all kinds of different things happening, you can, you can really tell the difference between somebody who has a background in, in certain subjects and somebody who doesn't. And I, I think that I really have appreciated the authors who have that background in anthropology or diplomacy or politics or or what have you, because they do seem to bring uh, a reality and richness to the fiction. Yeah, depth. Based is on what they know in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so again, Cordwainer Smith, um, you know, his, his last story was published close to 50 years ago, but I think seems to be holding up very well over time. Yeah. And, except and not, for the women. Except for the women. I was about to say, not <laughs> not all of it. Not that it's perfect. There's, but yeah. even then, the lady who sailed the soul. That was a much different perspective of femininity than you would have expected for that time period. No, yeah, but it, you know, this his wife had a big influence on that. <laughs> it's the same way they said that Lewis's wife had a big influence on Toby Had Faces. And right. This is one yeah. of the best protagonists I've ever read. So you know, all these. This is this is actually what kills me. 
all of these wives standing behind these male authors. Mm-hmm. On the other <laughs> hand, you, you do have to give at least a little credit to, to the authors in that case, the ones whose names are on the cover, because some of the other authors who were writing at the same time wouldn't have listened to their wives. <laughs> or would never no. even have talked to their wives about it. So I guess so. But you see, hmm, I guess I'm still all for giving people full credit. That's true. And actually, I mean, there's some, some, um, some folks now who, uh, for instance, uh, David Eddings in his later works, um, actually put, you know, he, he, he came out and not came out, but (laughs) told people, he's like, my wife has always been collaborating on my books and now I want her on the cover. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And that's pretty So I was, I was exactly thinking of that example. And, and the reason why it's important is that there are many people who can rattle off a whole list of male authors and make it sound as if, you know, these are the ones who can only give you your really important science fiction and fantasy. And if some of those male authors have had very significant influences and help and collaboration and what have you from their wives, come on, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, and that invisibility is what, is what concerns me. That's true. That's a very good point. So, but anyway... So then we wrapped up with Distances by Vandana Singh and Single Bit Error by Ken Liu. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the Ken Liu um, short story was, was cool because it gave us a chance to sort of um, echo back to Ted Chang's um, story, Heaven in the Absence of God. Um, hell is the Absence of God. Sorry, hell. <laughs> hell is the Absence of God. That was one good Freudian slip there. And, <laughs> as as and, Gavin is just now learning to say, those are opposites. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Actually, just this week he has learned that hot and cold are opposites, and it's so cute. Oh. <laughs> no, you see, I'm almost starting to digress because I wanted to talk to you about a book that I encountered, you know, Chica Chica Boom Boom. Uh huh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, people. This is diverging off SF into children's literature. <laughs> but it's really cool when you find uh, a book that you didn't grow up with and it's like so fascinating. You're like, no, I kind of want this in my library. I don't care if I'm not a kid anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, digression. Okay, so Ken, Ken <laughs> so, Liu. Yes. That, um, the single bit error, which was less about math, again, and more about um, sort of psychology and, and also about how we use hmm, how we construct worldviews again how we can even use if we're not using um, philosophy if we're not using religion we can use science to construct um, worldviews in a certain way where something happened and he constructed a highly scientific explanation for it which when he looked at it was almost as hand wavy as <laughs> you know as as what his girlfriend had to say about being visited by an angel. Yeah, yeah. But, it was certainly just, uh, it was certainly not um, not not how do you say bulletproof. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but it was it was interesting because it did give you that sense of um, you know ultimately we're we're all seeking patterns. We're all seeking meaning. And the basis the foundation that we choose for it can be variable, but sometimes the, the end goal is still about just trying to make sense. Trying to find a narrative in life. Yeah. Although one thing I really appreciated about what Lou wrote is that he's, in this story very specifically, he's working in a tradition, you know, hearkening back to, to Ted Chang, but, you know, there are other stories that feature this as well, of the obsessive protagonist. 
Yeah. And and this character goes through a period of obsession mm-hmm. and then comes out of it. Which you liked, I remember. And yeah. I I was really, really happy to see that. <laughs> not that yeah. I don't appreciate an obsessive protagonist as much as the next person, and not that I don't understand how they can function to drive a narrative. Mm-hmm. But it's nice to be remembered that every once in a while, you don't actually have to be obsessive about this stuff, and you can actually get over it, move on, and live your life. Exactly. And as, as the story said, sometimes even happily. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and many people have obsessive phases, but right. there are very few truly obsessive people in the world. So right. it actually rings truer to have somebody go through the phase because of some kind of emotional trauma, and as you say, find their way out of it eventually. Mm-hmm. But then I feel like in a in a season full of really good science fiction, honestly, I think we ended on a freaking high note. With <laughs> distances. Distances. Yes. That was one of those where have you been all my life kind of books. Oh yeah. And, and yes, I mean, definitely was recognized, was a Carl Brandon Parallax Award winner at two thousand eight, was it? Yes, yes. And it just it just so satisfied along the levels of portraying an alien culture as properly alien while still keeping hold of those things that, that give us that the whole thing of satisfaction in terms of humanity. Mm-hmm. Giving the complexity of discovery, the beauty of discovery on the one hand, and then the, oh crap, of the, these are the ramifications, the social ramifications of discovery. Mm-hmm. Where you, and, and, and scientists, scientists go through this all the time, really. Where you, you, on the one hand, you're just like, okay, we must uncover truth at all costs. And then the truth you uncover is used in, in various ways that you may not have anticipated. Well, and sometimes it's or not even, even that dramatic. I mean, I, I, I've just wrapped up a, a series of research last year at NASA about the, uh, one of the primary pyrotechnic devices that we use. And I was really proud of, of everything we did. I was really happy. And, and when the results came out and it all got nailed down, I was so satisfied. And then I realized that what the results actually said meant that there was some enormous pain in the ass, you know, engineering concerns we were going to have to take take forward. <laughs> and, you know, nothing like, oh, this might kill people or, oh, it's going to be used as a weapon of mass destruction. Nothing like that. Just, oh, we're going to have to put a lot more shielding on this stuff. That's going to uh-huh. suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you kind of come down from the euphoria of the discovery moment, don't you? And then it's like, oh, okay, this is a real world consideration. Right, yeah. It's like, oh, no, we actually have to do something because of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, and, and, and then... Well, but, but also, I mean, the, the character and the way she related to her work and her art and her workplace and her family and her old family yes. and... Everything. And, and a slender book, a novella. A novella. so packed, you know, do not skip a sentence, you will regret it. Yeah. So much in there. And I also love the way art and science were not on opposite sides of the spectrum. No, not at all. Not at all. It was... It was beautiful, beautiful way that was depicted. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I honestly think, you know, looking back, and maybe it's because, um, well, I'm not sure why, but but yeah, honestly, you know, Jackanoff and Distances, I think, are my my real high points. And maybe it's also because on the podcast, you and I were so in agreement about them, you know, it's, um, they, they obviously hit both of our sweet spots. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. Although I have to confess, the only thing I regret about distances is that that podcast was our shortest one, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but we were actually in the same room. <laughs> we were in the same room, but uh, as I said on my blog, and I'll say it now, I can just admit it once and for all, I was really suffering. Like, my, my jaw was in flames. I had, like, this wisdom tooth issues. Yeah, so poor thing. So I couldn't actually open my mouth very wide, so I wanted to, like, you know, wax poetic and just, like, be all in boost and whatever. That was in pain. <laughs> <laughs> you were having a really rough trip. I'm really yeah. glad you had as good a time as you did, considering everything that was going on. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so there's a part of me that feels if I hadn't had that going on, it probably would have been, like, an hour and a half podcast because I would have been <laughs> scrambling on, you know, taking all kinds of tangents. But as it was, because I had this pain, I had to be very direct and, and economical about what I wanted to say to, to at least do it justice. So I do I do want to say to people that if you're wondering why the podcast is so short and why even though I was clearly positive about it, I didn't like talk and talk and talk and talk. Reasons are external. Reasons are external. <laughs> yeah, so we certainly so that, do not mean any slight to, to Ken or Nandana <laughs> by, by, by talking yes. about them slightly less. Oh dear. So, so, yeah, uh, so I think that was a, a really nice season. I think we, we balanced the old and the new and, and, um, and came out with some, some really good stuff to have read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very worthwhile. And, and, yeah, I feel as if it's not just about discovering new works or discovering new authors. It's also about discovering new ways that SF does what it does. Mm-hmm. And that's important for people to know. Because we, we do talk about stagnation a lot, don't we? We do talk about things being derivative. I, I don't talk about it a lot, but, well, but yes. Sorry, we, we in the general yeah. sense. <laughs> I have heard it has been said to me on occasion. On Twitter, that. I see lots of people talking about stagnation, yes. And then yes. I try and point out, hey, have you seen all this amazing new stuff that's out there? And then they go back to talking about stagnation. Exactly. And I, I have to say, I had the experience, a very pleasant experience of um, visiting uh, a couple of libraries in North Carolina. And the majority of the audience, I would say, well, in one case, almost 100%, the other case, maybe about you know, 95% of the audience were not really SF readers. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating to see the, almost the discovery on their faces where they were like, what, what, really? This is SF? But I can enjoy this. Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, dang, you know, these are people who, it's it's all the sort of the mainstream stuff. They think that it all has to look like Twilight or The Hunger Games or Game of Thrones or Star Trek or and and no offense to all of those. Right, right. But there's this is a huge tent. Yeah, <laughs> there's so much. We out can there. we can move beyond that. Yeah. So it's it's been a discovery, I think, for some of the mainstream readers, and I I want I I feel as if you kind of need to get word out further in a way so that and, and describe things in a way that will be accessible to people maybe for you the joy of a particular book is oh look this is future fiction you know and it's, it's got some adventure in it but maybe somebody else who's an economist is going to be fascinated by uh, how, how the cultures and, and their financial systems portrayed or or just psychology that's going on at various levels so you, you can never, you shouldn't, you shouldn't pin down what's going to appeal to people other than the, the 
um, SF um, genre. Mm-hmm. And the whole the reason why I'm saying SF, I've, I've been saying sci-fi on occasion, the reason why I've stopped and I'm saying SF is because I'm thinking of the term speculative. SF meaning speculative fiction. Speculative meaning that we are taking a what-if. We're taking a, a, a scenario that has never happened, but we're actually injecting into it things that have happened, things that do happen, and forcing ourselves to look at it in a different way. That's hugely important, and we've been doing that. This didn't start in the 50s or the 40s or the 30s. This, this, has been, this is part of our storytelling tradition from time Right, right. So, and I mean, so, I've always preferred the Big Tent speculative fiction label myself, but, you know, I, I go with convention. I, I won't lie. I don't buck that trend <laughs> as much as I should. Yeah, anyway. So that was my soapbox for today. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, speaking of Big Tents, what do we have planned for the future? So, coming up next, basically, so we're going to go on another break. I've got to finish copy editing my book, and, uh, and I know that Karen's busy writing other things. So, um, so we're going to take another break, but in the winter, we plan to come back, and what we have in store is, for one, short stories, because yes. we, be we <laughs> have realized that talking about novels takes us too long, and we're hoping that maybe if we talk about short stories, we can do it in less than an hour and a half. <laughs> Actually, I thought it was the other way around, that we sometimes spend longer talking about short stories, but... It takes us a shorter time to read them, so we don't have to do as much preparation. That too, that too. <laughs> and maybe if we only talk about one per episode instead that's of four. It. That's true, that's true. I can't argue with that. <laughs> so what, what we have in mind is basically um, having a season where we focus on international fiction. So stuff not from the U.S., not from the U.K., not necessarily from Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to and... be tapped into the Vandermeer's anthology, The Weird. Right. It, beautiful, massive anthology of, of works from all over that, um, and also very much in the whole Big Tent idea, speculative fiction but not as you know it and I'm also going to be looking at the anthology which has been recently nominated for World Fantasy Award Three Messages and a Warning um, which is Mexican SF published by Small Bear Press um, what else do we have? Well, I know oh. one of the ones that I wanted to highlight is uh, one of the translated from Chinese stories that appeared in Clark's World. It was translated by Ken Liu, A um, Hundred Ghosts Parade Tonight by Jia Jia. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned to me some Afro-SF. Was something called Proposition 23? Yes, yes. And that was a collection from, literally, the, the anthology was titled Afro-SF, and the editor was Ivor Hartman. And uh, this was a, I believe it comes in either as a long novelette or a short novella. It was definitely my favorite from that collection. I think it's from Nigeria. Cool, cool. And we're going to we're going to try a little Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so Karen has challenged me. I, I do not speak Spanish. I actually am monolingual, unless you count math and computer languages. Um, but I have at times managed to read slightly challenging things in like very very old English so I'm like well if I can if I can read middle English if I can teach myself eventually to read middle English I should at least be able to tackle something in Spanish so (laughs) we chose something that I would find very motivating uh, to read in Spanish which is um, Jorge Luis Borges um, uh, The Library of Babel it's a story I've meant to read for forever it's hugely influential on other authors and so we will attempt to read it in Spanish we will attempt to read it in Spanish, but we're also going to compare it to the English translation because one of the things that fascinates me about translation is that um, 
<laughs> I have such I have huge respect for translators because it's never as simple as a a one to one connection. You have I remember reading by sheer chance the first two Harry Potter novels in Spanish. So you ha I had a funny situation where I know British culture and British sort of school culture and so forth. And I'm reading about it in Spanish and I can tell where certain things are not quite translating. And then eventually, of course, I got them in English. And I had a bit of fun just sort of looking back and forth between the two. And the same thing happened for, I think I got Terry Cratchit's Mort in Spanish as well. <laughs> And that was really hilarious because there were a couple of jokes which I'd remember because I'd had more from way back and I knew it partly by heart. And there were a couple of jokes that felt really, really, really flat because there's just <laughs> no way to translate them. No way whatsoever. And then, but the, the scariest thing of all is that death in Spanish is la muerte. Mm -hmm. So death was a woman in court. <laughs> that changed the whole feel of the book. My goodness, it would, wouldn't it? It would, yeah. wow. and I was just, I was just like, wow. But, 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 how do you get around that? So, so yeah, it was, it was, it was very interesting for me, and I, I do find it fascinating, not just as a challenge in terms of reading it in a different language, but also in terms of comparing it and seeing what kind of choices a translator or author has to make if they're trying to convey a particular meaning or sense or or, or, or mood. And it's, it's nice to be able to do this with Borges because um, he was raised internationally, actually, not just in Argentina, although that, that's where he made his home most of the time. Um, he was fluent in English, and he at least approved the translation of almost all his works into English. So, when so we, we, can, we can at least hope that what we see in English is, is what he attended. Uh, right, or at least he, whatever he approved as being, okay, yeah, that's the best you can do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So that, that will be a very interesting exercise. And I think we're going to, there are another couple things we're looking at. We, we haven't necessarily nailed down yet. So we will, of course, you know, leave things um, a little bit flexible, a little bit fluid to, to come up with some extra things, depending on what we think of. Yes. And we, we did have a, a big idea as well of trying to find things that reminded us of some of the, um, the authors that are well-known in science fiction. Like, if you like Cordovino Smith, you will like and we're kind of going to try to do that still but we're not going to, to hold to it too tightly because sometimes we're just coming across some really fascinating works where we may not be able to, to compare it to anybody that, that is known or well known in the, uh, in the SF um, sort of English literature genre list but you have to know about them you know? right. so just trust us and come along for the ride as you always do and we'll see what happens. Yes. So it should be a very enjoyable time. Yeah. And like I said, we're hoping that by talking about short stories, talking about one per episode, that maybe we can <laughs> not, uh, not, you know, how do you say, uh, wear on our listeners' patience quite so much as we sometimes <laughs> tended to. Or not um, feel as if we're rushing things as well. And by the way, we're always open to suggestions. So if yes. anybody has any, especially for the next season, international SF that you've read recently that you think we, we might love, uh, please, please uh, leave a note in the comments and we will absolutely be keeping an eye on that. Beautiful, yes. Well, we are, I think we have managed to 
come to what forty five minutes? Yeah, minutes thereabouts. So? Which which means that maybe uh, the Van Dana Singh and Ken Liu episode will not be our shortest episode. <laughs> <laughs> maybe this, this one a, will. This is the wrap up, so we're kind of alone. Yeah, and I hope yeah. that we have with this at least whetted your appetite. Some of I know some people head to the podcast where they already know the works quite sensibly because we are completely spoilerific. Absolutely, but if. If some of the, the little tasters that we gave you in the summary piqued your interest, I hope you do go back and check out some of the ones that you might have skipped over before. Um, not just in terms of podcasts, but in terms of, of reading the works and then listening to the podcasts afterwards. Yeah, we try and err on the side of things that you can find online, but of course we can't always. Um, and, and of course we always encourage you to go out and give authors money for writing the awesome things that they do. Please, please, because the whole starving artist thing doesn't really work too well for too yeah. long. Then they end up starving and they don't write anymore. Exactly. Counterproductive. <laughs> Excellent. So with that, we will, we will draw a curtain. We will bring season two to a close. We thank everyone for sticking with us as always. Thank you so much. And thanks again to SF Signal, John DiNardo, for being our excellent, excellent host. As always. And congratulations. And congratulations. Yes. For their second Hugo Award. And, and by the way, on a completely mercenary note, SF Signal itself has recused itself from the fanzine category. That doesn't mean you can't still nominate us for FanCast next year. Just, just saying. Karen wants to see her husband in a formal kilt. Yes, if, if I ever get nominated for a Hugo, either for FanCast or FanWriter or Best Related Work, my husband has said he will wear a tuxedo kilt to the ceremony. And I, and I, and I, I actually want to see that. Yeah, so. <laughs> we, we all want to see that, because if there's ever a man who was born to wear a kilt, it's my husband. There you go. <laughs> so, just saying. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, thank you all very much, and we will catch you sometime this winter. Take care till then. Bye.